This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be looking at the autumn statement, asking whether Trump could win in 2024, and celebrating the comic strip Peanuts. First up, how long will the pain last? That's the question Kate Andrews asks in her cover piece for the magazine, reflecting on Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. She joins me now alongside Professor David Miles, economy expert on the committee at the Office for Budget Responsibility. Kate, could you start by bringing our listeners up to speed on what has been announced in this week's autumn statement? After the many surprises in Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's budget upset the markets in in quite a big way, it is not surprising that Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have decided not to pull rabbits out of hats. So a lot of what's been announced was expected, but I don't think that makes the headlines any less uh, kind of shocking when you take it all in. So the Chancellor has announced £55 billion worth of consolidation. This breaks down to about £25 billion worth of tax hikes and £30 billion worth of spending cuts by 2027-2028. The biggest tax is really that ultimate stealth tax that's, that comes by freezing tax thresholds for income tax and national insurance and inheritance tax, which means that fiscal drag uh, is going to pull millions of people into higher tax brackets because of inflation. And this is overall expected to raise um, about £26 billion in the coming up to 2028. So really quite a lot of money indeed. But, you know, some of the headlines to come out of this are going to be staggering. The tax burden is now being taken to a post-war high. We are going to see, we're looking at the biggest fall in in living standards in in post-war history as people's disposable income plummets. I suppose the, the maybe one of the better pieces of news is that the OBR estimates a better prediction for the recession than the Bank of England has done. Five consecutive quarters of negative growth compared to the bank's eight. But this was a very painful wake-up call, uh, not just for the pandemic spending, but for all of the very expensive promises that have been made around pensions and uh, health care you know, over successive governments for, for many, many decades. And when you can't borrow so cheaply anymore, who actually has to pay for it, turns into everybody paying for it, I would say is the takeaway so far from this autumn statement. Speaking of the OBR, David, unlike Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget in September, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak did indeed get a forecast from the OBR and made a, quite a big thing in the, in the press about how they this time had got a forecast from the OBR. So I wonder if you could start by, by telling our listeners what the OBR's take on the autumn statement is and the, the economic direction that Sunak and Hunt are taking the country. I think it's a very difficult position for the government and the Chancellor to start from because we've had really quite a lot of bad economic news, certainly since the last time that the OBR produced a detailed report, which was back in March, or at least a publicised report. And it's really quite a substantial hit to the size of the UK economy that we think will play out over the next four or five years. And that's the background for the decisions. Let me briefly outline how big a hit that is. A combination of very much higher gas prices than we saw even at the beginning of this year, particularly relevant 
because the last time we forecast the underlying potential of the economy was back at the end of last year. And since then, gas prices have gone up almost threefold. Petrol prices have gone up rather a lot as well. And some other commodity prices have risen. And we factor that in and try and work out how much of the British economy is no longer viable or feasible at these higher energy prices, which are likely to persist into the future, although they come down a little bit. It knocks a hole in investment. It knocks a hole in the productive potential of the economy of the order of 1.5% or so. On top of that, the level of interest rates for the government, for all households, has gone up very markedly. That's not unique to the UK. In fact, the increase in interest rates now is pretty much in line with what's happened in Germany, in the US, in most other European countries. That wasn't true a couple of months ago, when rates have gone up a lot more here than elsewhere, but they've dropped back. And we've now seen an increase in interest rates that looks about the same as most other rich industrialised Western e- economies. But that also knocks a hole in the economy, partly because it reduces consumer spending and available income to spend on UK things. You have to import the things that have gone up in price. And it also means that the cost of borrowing for companies is higher. And we factor that in in our forecast and it means a bit less investment. And that reduces the potential output of the economy. And you put all that together and our assessment is that the size of the economy five or so years down the road is about 3.5% lower than we thought even at the beginning of this year. That's £100 billion less of GDP. So that's the backdrop against which the government then makes some rather painful decisions on what you do about spending, what you do about tax, in order to not have the stock of debt relative to GDP simply going up and up and up, which it would have done if they hadn't announced... The, the kind of package of uh, measures that we've seen this morning. Kate, Rishi Sunak, since he entered number 10, has said that he doesn't think Liz Truss was wrong to go for growth. And actually, he says that is his ambition also. Is there any sign of that in this statement? I suppose a little bit. It's very Rishi Sunak heavy when it comes to the areas where we are going to see investment. And by that, I mean, if we go back to his Mace lecture at the very start of the year when he was still chancellor, he laid out what he thought were the problems with the UK economy, areas where he thought we could get more productivity and growth. And if you look at what Chancellor Jeremy Hunt announced today, it oozes that that Mace lecture the extra money going into the education budget, roughly $2.3 billion a year, the uptick in R&D funding, which they're not cutting, the, decisional, the decision not to really touch capital investment, um, whilst that budget's not to, going to go up, it's not going to grow as quickly as planned, they're not going to cut it. These are the areas where Rishi Sunak has made very clear in the past, you know, he thinks we can get productivity going. So I don't think from number 10's perspective, they're going to think that they ignored growth. But the very difficult thing about this budget is that I don't think there are any growth measures in here that are going to kick in in the near future. And I think the suggestion here is that we are now in a cycle under a conservative government, no less, where we are just going to have to keep increasing taxes and cutting spending until that growth comes and can replace some of those more difficult decisions. And yet we're not talking about the big areas of opportunity, mainly housing and healthcare, where you could get serious efficiency gains, where you could get a lot more growth. Those are, of course, two of the most difficult areas to tackle. But this is going to be a problem for Rishi Sunak. You know, when he was chancellor, often behind closed doors or in cabinet meetings, he was quite happy to, you know, put his hand up and say, we have a problem with the National Health Service. It isn't performing as it should. Um, He, in November 2020, was the one leading the charge to actually 
tackle the triple lock on state pensions to properly reform it. He thought that was the right time, given that so many young people were staying home to to protect those who are more vulnerable. This was the right time to tackle a, a policy that had a huge aspect of intergener- intergenerational unfairness to it. And Boris Johnson would often shoot these things down. Now he's prime minister and he's in a position to tackle these things, but he's decided to uplift the state pension in line with inflation. Um, he's giving more money to the NHS, an additional $3 billion a year for the next two years uh, so that it doesn't have to deal with real terms cuts um, due to inflation. So it's very easy, I suppose, to make a name for yourself as being the reformer, but to actually do the reform is another story. Now, as I say in in the cover piece, you know, one government insider, I'm paraphrasing here, essentially said to me, "You, you can't get the public finances back in order after such chaos. And in addition to that, do all of this public sector reform. You have to take things in baby steps. That's what we learned from Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. And I think from a political angle, that makes sense. But for everybody who's now going to be experiencing this tax squeeze and the cuts to public services, these these real-term spending cuts for so many departments, you have to ask, you know, how long will the tolerance for that last? David, not everyone is is happy with the attention given to the OBR forecasts. Uh, David Davis in The Telegraph this week was critical of those who who take them as gospel. I wonder what your response to him and others like him might be. I think he's absolutely right. I mean, you shouldn't take any forecast, any economic forecast as, as gospel. I mean, the best you could hope for is it's a rough guide to what might happen, might happen, given government policies, but with a huge zone of uncertainty around a central forecast. And you can guarantee that it will not be right. I mean, it may not be a very good analogy, but forecasts are always wrong with 100% probability. I mean, it's true of your sat-nav. You get in the car and say, how long is it going to take me to get to Devon? And it says three hours and 46 minutes. And I can guarantee it will not take you three hours and 46 minutes. Furthermore, Every five miles you drive with a sat-nav, it changes the forecast. So it's the same with economic forecasts. When people say, oh, they're always wrong and they keep changing, that's about true of any sat-nav. But you're probably better having the sat-nav in the car than just saying, well, I think it's going to be two and a half hours to get to Devon, and then you drive down a road and it says, this road's blocked. So they're very imperfect tools, and all they are, I think, is just a guide as to what kind of pressures might lay ahead and what kind of difficulties might arise if you follow a particular strategy on on tax or spending and what strategy might give you a chance, a reasonable chance, say, of stopping debt to GDP following a trajectory that could be explosive and generate, as happened at the end of September, a very adverse and immediate impact in financial market. There's an irony, though, isn't it, David, that Kwarteng and Truss's decision with their September mini-budget to not wait for a forecast from the OBR, sort of cut the OBR out of the process, has that not meant that now more attention is on the OBR's forecast than, than ever before? It's been, in a way, sort of empowering in the end for the OBR, hasn't it? has it not? Um, there's certainly more focus on, on, on the forecast. Whether that's empowering or slightly awkward is, <laughs> is, is, uh, depends which way you look at it. There's certainly more attention paid to what we say and what we've just said. But as I say, I, David Davis is absolutely right. And others, Jacob Rees-Mogg, have a lot of sympathy for what they say. I mean, one should absolutely not take what the OBR 
says as in any sense a very precise forecast for how the economy will evolve and it will with probability one not evolve in line with the OBR central forecast what we do do is give a sort of indication of how much confidence you could have in our own forecast I think it'd be rather useful if satnavs did that actually but anyway and I think that's probably the most useful thing we can do which is to say if the government follows this strategy we think there's a certain probability and in fact at the moment it's not a great deal more than a 50% chance of success in hitting the government's targets which is to have debt to GDP ratio level off and fall just a little bit right at the end of the forecast horizon. Kate could it not be said that one consequence of the trust era uh, and we're seeing it now with the autumn statement this week is that politically speaking the case for more debt and funding tax cuts or public spending increases through debt is is politically just now extremely hard to do. In the long term, looking ahead to 2024, that will make things rather difficult for Labour, will it not? Well, it should do. I mean, I'm old enough to remember four weeks ago when the Labour Party was talking about costing all of its promises and the problem with borrowing your way to prosperity and all the rest of it. And, you know, that was very targeted at Liz Truss and Quasi Quartang, and they were taking advantage of the political moment. That narrative has dropped off substantially. I, you know, I think there's a, a reintroduction to Labour Party now that actually, you know, their borrowing would be different. They were right four weeks ago. I think they're wrong now. The global trend, this is not just the UK, does seem to be that the era of cheap money is, is coming to an end, at least for now. I suppose a cynic could look at this autumn statement today and think, well, this is the worst it could possibly be because uh, what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have done is they have addressed that fiscal black hole in such a competent way that, to David's point, if they politely respect but also try to challenge those OBR forecasts, right, you know, let's get growth up. Let's, not to prove them wrong, but exactly as you say, like, no forecast is going to be perfect. So let's implement the public policy so that these figures are better than this, you know, horrifying scenario put in front of us. Then they'll be in a position next year and getting closer to an election actually to ease off on a lot of this, maybe to even bring in some tax cuts, that the better news will be coming down the track. That could be a cynic's perspective. And, and you know, maybe there's an element of that. But the truth is, if you want to do really serious day-to-day spending from here on out, if you want to give the NHS a huge boost, if you want to keep the promises that we've made to pensioners, you know, for the foreseeable future, you're going to have to figure out how to fund it. And if you're not willing to go for the serious growth reforms, and I, I, I think Liz Truss was broadly right in her diagnosis of the problem that we don't build anything in the UK anymore. We don't build houses. You know, we, we're not building enough uh, sustainable energy and all the rest of it. Then you're in a position where you're going to have to look at tax hikes or spending cuts. And yeah, this this will haunt Labour. But the thing is, the Labour Party doesn't really have to say much on this right now. You know, that their job is to watch the government fight this fight, oversee the UK during what's going to be a really painful period of economic contraction. And I think they're just going to have to hope that, they're seem comp- that they seem competent at the end of this. Of course, what Rishi Sunak will be hoping is that his time as chancellor during the pandemic and his time now will prove that he can put things back on the right path. But of course, perhaps, you know, saving the, the UK finances from all the disastrous spending and, and, and borrowing that was planned is not the same as winning the hearts and minds of voters. Mm. 
Final question to, to both of you, starting with you, Kate, if, if, if I may. The question asked on the cover of this week's Spectator is, how long will the pain last? How long will it last? Well, it's going to last for a very long time because we are looking at such a contraction in people's disposable income, in their wages, much of this is, is thanks to inflation, that the truth is, even when things settle, and even when we do get some growth back into the economy, we are going to be set back so far from where we should have been in terms of increasing our living standards, in terms of generating prosperity. So I think this is going to have some real long-term implications but just getting through this winter is going to be hard enough and it's you know to the point about forecasts and their reliability i think it's very important to have them it's also very difficult to say with accuracy exactly when when we move back from contraction into growth again and david i think i'm moderately optimistic that although the economy is probably already in a recession and it's quite likely that the level of gdp might fall through most of next year that by the standards of history, the recession will be a relatively shallow one. And that's partly because the government's actually put a lot of money in this year and next year to protecting households against a fairly large part of the hit to their disposable income. There's going to be a big hit to disposable income. It would have been even bigger if the government weren't providing uh, some support to households. Beyond next year... I think it's it's more likely than not that the inflation rate in the UK, painfully high at the moment, 11%, falls back really quite significantly. When and if that happens, and I think it's likely, that in itself will be very helpful for the growth of disposable incomes, which will at least likely turn positive as you go through 24 and into 2025. So I think we will get some growth back. And so the good news is that although 2023 and this Christmas may seem very grim, it's more likely than not that the situation will improve quite markedly a couple of years down the road. But Kate is absolutely right. There is a long-term hit, I think, to the standard of living of people in the UK. And that's largely a result of things beyond our control. They're global things. The interest rate increases are very big, and they're a global phenomena. And the increase in energy prices is very big, and that's also a global phenomenon. Thank you, Kate and David. Next, in the magazine this week, The Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray, looks at the never-ending Trump campaign. He joins me now alongside Joe Walsh, former 2020 Republican presidential candidate. Freddie, Trump has finally announced what we all suspected, which is that he is again running for president. Judging from the launch of his campaign, what do you think will be his central message this time around? And do you think he has a shot at the Republican nomination? Uh, I think he does have a shot at the nomination. I, I think there's obviously a lot of excitement about Ron DeSantis, but I think perhaps people are underestimating the appeal of Trump as Trump among the party that he does now dominate still in many ways. I think his core message is what it's always been, which is that I'm right about everything and that the uh, Democrats and the radical left are destroying this country, and I'm the only person that can stop them. I think his problem, possibly, is that not as many people believe that or are willing to believe that now, And he, because he has, uh, he's not the outsider he was in 2015. So the fact that he's saying exactly the same things as he was in 2015, 2016... It's not so good for him, I don't think, anymore, because he cannot pose as the 
anti-establishment candidate in the way that he could. Well, Joe, uh, for our, our, our listeners who may not be aware, you started off supporting the Trump presidency. You then denounced him, and then you started your own bid for the presidency in 2020. Uh, do you mind just letting our, our listeners know what made you support Trump in the first place, why you stopped supporting him, and finally, what you make of his announcement to run again this week? I supported Trump because I'm a conservative and the same people who supported him supported me. They were my people. They were my voters. I understood why Trump got elected. Our political system is broken. Both parties suck. Trump came along. We needed disruption. He was a disruptor. So I got all of that. My problem was I didn't pay enough attention to him. There are good disruptors and bad disruptors. He's an evil disruptor. So as soon as he got elected, I started to pay attention to him and I realized this guy is dangerous, criminal, traitorous and unfit and every time he opens his mouth he lies. So I, I left him. Look, I think what's really important to understand is he's not a normal politician. He is a cult leader. I, I was a Republican my whole life. The party became a cult. He is a movement leader. It's, it's not the normal politician relationship. People will die for him. They'll take a bullet for him. Um, Freddie's right. He's lost some support. But the 30 to 35 percent of the Republicans who adore him, they'll die for him. And anybody who would challenge that had better know what the hell they're doing because he's going to be really difficult to beat for the nomination. So you think his odds are pretty good? This time around. Oh, my God. Right now, he's the odds-on, clear, runaway favorite. Uh, who, who else is going to challenge him? People talk about DeSantis. I know Ron DeSantis. DeSantis couldn't get on a stage with him. DeSantis has zero charisma. But most importantly, right now, most Republicans around the country don't know DeSantis. So he could challenge Trump and make it interesting. Other people could. But right now, he's the king of the hill. Uh, Freddie, what do you make of, of that? Do you think Ron DeSantis really doesn't have much of a chance of going up against Trump? And I suppose, secondly, would he want to go up against Trump if it means that it, it could be an, a premature end to, to his uh, his political rising star? Well, I think somebody in the sort of Trump world uh, said it to me uh, for a piece I was doing a while ago, anybody who goes up against Trump, Donald Trump in the Republican Party has a death wish. And that's a very Trumpy thing to say, but it's also a little bit true. With DeSantis, I think it is interesting. I think there is obviously some, there are some big GOP donors now that are getting interested in him. There is an appetite for something different. And he has this advantage of the fact that Trump has sort of got himself in a situation where he's declared with a very long time to go. So Trump is going to run an extraordinarily long presidential campaign. And not just the media, but people, I think, are a little bit bored um, now because it's been so long, so many years of Trump saying the same things over and over again. The shtick doesn't quite have the same uh, fizz that it did. And in theory, a, a different candidate, DeSantis possibly, could come in and generate a lot of excitement very quickly. What Trump wants is what he had back in 2016, which is a very divided Republican field, a very large divided Republican field with lots of different candidates squabbling for each other. And he is just the dominant force. He's a much bigger dominant force now than he was back then. But I think if I think it could be a very interesting fight is my rather long winded way of, of putting it. Well, Joe, 
uh, Freddie's point just there about the sheer number of candidates of dividing the vote when it comes to the nomination. Uh, I mean, that's what we saw happen in 2016. I mean, I can't, was it 16 candidates there were for the Republican race something at like one that, point? Yeah. Something like that. And you said just earlier on, of course, that, that there's this solid 30 to 40 percent of the, the Republican Party that supports Trump. Do you think there's a chance that the, the, the rest of the party that isn't so keen on Trump could rally quickly behind one candidate so, we, so there's not the same huge field that we saw in 2016? Or is, is that just unlikely to happen? I think I think it could happen. And look, let me just say, I hope Freddie's right. I do. Like, like I'm a never Trumper and everybody thinks people like me still want Trump around. I don't want him around. I don't want him to run. I never want to see or hear from the guy again. I hope Freddie's right that Trump Trump struck magic six years ago and his shtick will wear off. It doesn't matter what Republican donors say. It doesn't matter what Republican bigwigs say. The only thing that matters is what Republican voters say. Um, And if they, Freddie's right, if they start to get bored and turn on him, Trump's in trouble. DeSantis is a perfect default candidate for Trump supporters because DeSantis is a Trumpy candidate. That's the other thing. Mike Pence has no shot. Most of these people have no shot. Republicans want a Trump, but a Trump who can win. They want a bastard. They want a bully. They want a cruel guy. DeSantis, they think, is that, and they think DeSantis can win. That's DeSantis's edge right now. And, and Freddie, you, you, you mentioned in your piece that perhaps surprisingly in his uh, the launch of his campaign, Trump didn't make a very big thing of the kind of stolen election narrative that he has peddled quite quite a lot in the last year. Do you think he's going to continue to sort of make some distance away from that narrative? Because he, if he thinks that it's getting him onto a losing track? I, I don't think we know yet. I think it sounded to me on Tuesday night as though he was trying to present himself as uh, a presidential candidate for 2024, not someone who's harping on about the stolen election 2020. The real test will be at the rallies. Does he go back to this at the rally? Because he, even if he wants to, he probably can't resist the stolen election lines because it's it's what g's up the crowd and it's what it's what causes the the, the controversy and and the anger that he sort of thrives on. So I think I'm pretty certain that people around Trump are telling him that it's not working. The 2020 stuff, voters, even if they think that 2020 was a little bit of a strange election, and lots of Americans do, not just uh, crazy Trumpists. They don't want to talk about what happened before, and they don't want to participate in an election that they think is pointless. So I think people around Trump are saying, let's move on, let's talk about 2024, not 2020. Whether he's imbibed that message is, is a question we'll have to find out. Freddie makes a really good point. That speech, a lot of people thought Trump's speech was low energy. No, his advisors grabbed him by the neck and said, don't talk about the 2020 election. The other advantage Trump has is he can say, look how good things were during my four years. Look how much they suck during Biden's four years. Trump does have now a record, at least for his Republican base, that he can point to. Well, Joe, actually, just finally, just picking off that that point you made just then, he, you said Trump can point to these four years where the economy was in a much better place. It's obviously in a less good place now. Do you think, let's assume Trump gets the Republican nomination, do you think 
he has a shot at beating Biden in 2024 in a sort of round two. Hell yes. I mean, think about this, guys. We live in a world right now where 22 months ago, a sitting American president led a violent attempt to overthrow an American election. That guy shouldn't even be in our country anymore. He remains the leader of the party and he's running for president. So for anyone to say if Trump is the nominee, he can't win, they're like smoking something. Yes, because the Democrats, because the Republicans are so crazy in America, we forget about the fact that the Democrats have real issues. Joe Biden is going to be 82 years old in two years. Who else might run? Trump only lost in 2020 by about 60,000 votes because of our electoral college. Heck yes, he could win again. Thank you, Freddie and Joe. Finally, in the arts lead this week, Matthew Lyons writes about the bleak brilliance of the Peanuts comic strip. He joins me now with Christian Adams, political cartoonist at the Evening Standard. Matthew, why do you think Peanuts is as popular as it is? I think there's lots of different answers to that. I mean, I think um, in terms of the comic strip itself, I think initially what people people found it, well, it's visually, it was very fresh visually. He stripped away all the background, not noise, but all the background details. So what you saw was the characters, he gave them big heads, much more expressive. Um, but he also introduced kind of like a, a, a new kind, I guess, emotional vocabulary to, to, to the cartoon strip. And for those who don't know the strip itself, I mean, it's... it's Certainly for like the first 30 years or so, it's, it's really quite dark and bleak and, you know, a lot kind of the core comedy is kind of humiliation and unrequitedness and um, defeat. I mean, Charlie Brown is the, is the iconic character of that, but it's kind of true for all of, all of the characters in different ways. So I think, you know, certainly in terms of like the comic strips, massively influential in, in you know, pretty much every kind of comic strip ever since. It's like used the kinds of styles and, and uh, vocabulary, if you like, that, um, that Schultz created. But then, I mean, he also like licensed, to, I mean, it's controversial in, you know, particularly for other comic strip writers, like Bill Watterson, who did uh, Calvin and Hobbes, hated all the licensing stuff. But I mean, he, he had this, there's this massive second industry, which kind of gives, um, you know, Snoopy in particular, but and Charlie Bouncy on their characters, this, uh, like this other second life. You know, and it was turning. I don't know when he. I don't know what it turns over now, but it was. It was turning over like a billion when he died, and I think someone paid and one hundred seventy million for the rights to it, like ten years or so ago. You know, it's still a massive concern. So it has. You know, it has. A, Sorry, it has Matthew. A, I think his wife is in, in one of the richest people in the United States. Oh really? I saw, his I, widow. His widow. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw. I, I don't. I, I haven't seen like the last year or two, but certainly like he was one of the top three earning dead celebrities after like Michael Jackson and Elvis, I think. I can't, I can't remember now. So yeah, I mean, big money. So he kind of has this kind of double life. You know, if you know the strip, it's, um, it's full of kind of quite bleak emotional truths. You know, people compare him to like Chekhov and Beckett. And then, and then you have, um, you know, this kind of saccharine sweet kind of, but very kind of you know, commercial sellable kind of, um, you know, merchandise life. Well, Christian, as a cartoonist, were you inspired by Peanuts, both in terms of the humour or the actual style of it? Yes, it's 100% is the answer to your question. The humour you appreciate later, because as a six-year-old, when I was drawing Snoopy and Charlie Brown and copying 
the, the message in the strips was slightly over my head, apart from the obvious, very simple ones. But the style, absolutely. I mean, it was so fresh to me. And all the, uh, because, uh, you know, I was reading British newspapers, the strips, we didn't have any American strips, really. So they were all British, like Fred Bassett and the Gambles and content aside, the style was not exactly um, inspiring. Peanuts, as Matthew said, the line was so simple. It was so easy for a child to copy that, me. And then I've been cribbing off Schultz's style ever since, you know, for the last 40 years, because mm. it's so beautifully simple, yet it's absolutely accurate. It, it's everything. It is a tree. It is a, you know, a, some shoes sitting on the floor <laughs> on their own. It, it's absolutely accurate. It's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, he's, the way he's done it so simply. And do you agree with Matthew's uh, analysis about the humour that that it's it actually is all about failure, rejection, humiliation? It's actually quite bleak underneath the kind of cheerful you, aesthetic. You, it, a little bit, because you can look for stuff that you want to find. And there have been many, many books and essays written about peanuts, and how deep it is, and how and how not dark, but it, it's much deeper than it appears. If you want to look for that, I'm sure you can find it. There are some bits. Linus, for example, is a character who's extremely philosophical and he'll just sit there and be very philosophical, which has not happened in any other, as far as I know, comic strip until Calvin and Hobbes. But generally, I, I think it is. It's 98% of the strips, if you look back at them, are very, very breezy, light, fun little gags, really, and quite slapstick, some of them. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's, there is some... Darkness. The first trip was the, the sort of most famous one is Charlie Brown passing two girls and they're like, hi, Charlie Brown. He's like, hi. And, and he walks past. And then as he leaves into the distance, both of the girls say to each other, God, I hate Charlie Brown. Yeah. So if you see, if you think that's dark, then yeah, it goes into that. Category. And and Matthew, I wonder what you said just now and in your piece that Schultz could kind of justify the, the sheer commercialization of his work by his belief that comic strips, as he put it, will never be art they're made to be funny in the newspaper today and then thrown away so he never viewed his he never viewed his own work as art do you think he's right to come to that conclusion well i, I have to say i think i think he was kind of like playing a bit of a game with, with that i th- i think he probably did think it was art but he i think he, he was just trying to protect his kind of creative space i think i think there's one late interview where he says look i'm just protecting myself here he, yeah he used to come up with all kinds of stuff like um you know what well, no one t- no one criticized picasso for selling plates you know and that kind of thing and you know it, it can't be art cuz it's not in a gallery but I, I i actually think he did think it was art but felt it was easy for him not to say so um yeah i think i think it you know it's um i think i think it's um, it's beautifully drawn uh, i think it's very funny i think it's very real the, you know the characters are very real they've all got their distinct kind of personalities and um i mean it's also like brilliantly written i think like because it's a card, comic strip you focus on the the drawing but the writing's like superb it's got brilliant ear for language all different kinds of registers get in there i mean talked about the you know, philosophical kind of language of Linus, but there's lots of like scriptural reference and sports psychology and all these kinds of things that are kind of woven in there. It's, it's really like the writing is just superb. Christian, do you worry that cartoons now are becoming less and less popular? Do you think that the environment which gave birth to creations like Peanuts or Calvin and Hobbes, do you think they just don't exist anymore? Perhaps that's to do with the decline of print media or a change of 
of taste. But I mean, do you think that that comic strips have had their day? They, they, they yes, they've definitely survived. And I must say, Amer- Amer- um, American newspapers are particularly old fashioned. So they've kept their funnies page, as they call it, with I don't know, 20, 25 strips on it, like the New York Times. Um, but of course, I'm going to say that nowadays strips have evolved and changed because of the internet. And you now have people who do, you know, swipe uh, strips. It's still four panels, uh, but you swipe through. It's drawn differently because usually it's uh, not hand-drawn. It's done on uh, Photoshop. So it looks a little bit different. Uh, the, the process of viewing it is different because you're swiping. When, but there's a lot more single column, uh, sing, sorry, single um, panel comic strips, although it's not a strip, because of the screen, because of the internet. So they're, they're sort of one-off political or social little gags. So it's changed, but people... Are, still want to see it obviously people aren't bored of of cartoon strips definitely not they love it it's what's not to like but they're not being paid for in the same way are they if they're being put online no well that's another point they better get out and put it on some t-shirts and um you know and uh, like snoopy you know yeah well my final question to both of you starting with you matthew if that's okay is if there's people listening to this podcast who, who haven't really got into peanuts before is there one particular strip that you think is your your favorite or, or just especially good that would be a good place to start oh that's a really hard question i mean there's what eighteen thousand or something uh, yeah, so um, think carefully <laughs> <laughs> there's one that i really like where um i don't know mid late 50s where one of the kind of minor girl characters is on a hillside left-hand strip and she's painting like a child's um child's drawing for like a flower and then you know she walks across to the to the far right where Charlie Brown is is uh, standing standing beside his own easel and he's and he's saying you know I've been feeling very depressed this week and and his and his um, painting is just black just painted the whole thing black which I think which I think is really funny and it's also kind of something that the fast show sort of ripped off thirty years later so that I don't know that there there are, there are loads you can talk about there are loads you can talk about Christian what about you well I can't I I won't pick one but I will pick a recurring uh, a recurring gag, which is just fantastic, which is um, uh, Lucy, the ra- she's rather cruel and bossy and, quote, crabby girl, and she holds up this um, American football on the ground. Sorry, hold, holds the American football on the ground. And it's always, I'll hold it here for you, Charlie Brown. Come up and kick it. I'll hold it so you can kick it. And he's, and he's like, you always pull it away from me. And she's like, but I promise you I won't do it this time. He's like, I'm not falling for that trick again. Of course, it's written far better than I'm saying it now. And how many hundreds of times this gag must have been done? And she said, I promise I won't. And he said, really? And he said, I promise, Giz, but you always do. And then, of course, every single time he runs up to kick the ball, she pulls it away from him and he lands on the ground. There's various different punchlines, but it's always the same gag, basically. I think it's fantastic. Well, Matthew and Christian, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of the magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week. 